2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello there. Welcome to Climactic. I'm Gretchen Miller. And today we're talking online activism and keeping the ledger straight. We all get our news online. Social media is our town square and the news pages are the town criers. I follow a bunch of these pages and while plenty of the articles they share demonstrate great empathy and compassion for the complexities of life lived and a commitment to science and waking the world up to climate change, there's an equally powerful commitment from people who seem to find social justice, equality, fairness and acceptance profoundly threatening. Some are bots, some are astroturfers and shills, and some are believers. Whatever they are, they actively seek out stories of tolerance and climate activism to drown out the voice of the town crier. These are voices of hatred, discrimination, and frankly, I think fear. They shout so loudly that your friend, who might be climate concerned but not engaged, feels there may be more of a diversity of scientific opinion than there actually is and might not get that the science is in. They might also feel that expressing discrimination is just voicing your opinion. So do you want to contribute to that discussion and risk getting attacked? Quite possibly not. But there's a global Facebook movement that's grown up organically and powerfully over the past few years and stepped up little by little and more and more to counter that hatred and open space for other views. It's a group that sits at the tipping point of civic discourse. It's the I Am Here movement and our guest today is the administrator of the Australian arm, Gabriel Morse of I Am Here Australia. Welcome, Gabriel, and just quickly, a bit of history. Where did I Am Here start, and how did it take off? It was started in Sweden in 2016 by a journalist named Mina Dennert, and it stemmed from personal experience. She posted a piece on her private personal Facebook page in support of refugees and was horrified, actually, frankly, to see people she knew, friends of hers, people she thought she knew, react negatively and actually attack her for supporting refugees. What she ended up doing was getting in touch with a few more friends, saying, hey, I'm kind of having a problem here, can you help me out? And they did. And she noticed right away that when other moderating, reasonable voices joined the conversation, that the tone overall moderated right away. So essentially, the kernel of an idea was born just that day. That's a really interesting story. And what's interesting about it is that it made such a difference to have other people come on and engage with Mina's issue. What brought you then to I Am Here? I 
Do you want the long version? The long version is that I was always a never read the comments guy, which I think a lot of people are. And my feeling was that it was the sort of the online disinhibition effect and that people weren't really as awful as they seemed in comment sections online. And what changed my view on that was the 2016 US presidential election, because all of the hatred that was being espoused online, which I thought people aren't really like that, well, they are. And that really changed my perception of what was going on online, who these people were, and that it wasn't just a playground. So I found my way to I Am Here through another, an internet group. Someone just told me about it. I sought out some information. I read a BBC article, which I think a lot of people did, focusing on the German group and about what they did. And it mentioned that it, there was a UK group. So I joined it, or I applied to join it, and they accepted me. And I didn't know there was an Australian group until I joined the UK group. So you went being a, I don't read the comments guy to, okay, these comments are actually something really meaningful. And so you joined the UK group and then discovered there was an Australian group. And then what made you want to then become an administrator? I had some experience with administrating Facebook groups. So I felt that my own experience might be worthwhile. And I asked and I spoke about my experience and they were very receptive. What I didn't know at the time was that the Australian group had actually been paused. And when I joined, there were only about 120 members. And so my joining, unbeknownst to me, was sort of a impetus to try to get the group going again. And the administrators at the time went, okay, well, maybe it's worth keeping on going with this. Yeah, this was in conjunction with the overall global movement who mentor and coach and help out new smaller groups as they start. Yeah, It's an absolutely fascinating example of how people can self-organise. Can you talk a little bit about that self-organising and what you observe about it, of the Australian and the international scene and the relationship between the two? Sure. It's volunteers. It's people who see a problem and are themselves compelled to address it. Everyone just takes time out of their everyday lives. Everyone has families and jobs and commitments galore. But we come together over the idea that marginalized people need to be stood up for, disinformation needs to be challenged, and we feel like even in small numbers, we can make a difference. Can you set the scene for us? What happens when you're a member, when you join up? It's very simple, very clear, and very specific. What we do is pretty darn specific. We post actions in the group where there is a comment section that is going off the rails. And by going off the rails, I mean filled with hate, filled with misinformation, sometimes deliberate disinformation. And we look at the balance between positive, negative, between compassionate and lacking compassion, between empathetic and lacking empathy. And if that comment section, which we would determine is going off the rails, could use our input to help balance the tone, we go there and we ask our members to go there with us. How do you find the pages to support? Do you particularly focus on any one area? No, we focus on Australian media outlets and that takes very, very many forms. And, and oftentimes we pick an action not based on the topic of the action, but the content of the comments. So personally, what I do is I have 
11,000 tabs open on my phone to various Facebook pages of various outlets. That's how I find them. Are there any that you just don't bother with? Any media outlets that you don't bother with or any that you particularly focus on? Honestly, when I first started doing this and I realized that I was going to have to be looking at media sites and their Facebook pages, which I would normally never look at, my prediction was that the Daily Telegraph in Sydney was going to be the worst one. You know what? It's not. There's plenty of antagonism on all of these pages, but my own preconceptions of what would be the worst were completely wrong because often it's SBS or The Guardian or The Sydney Morning Herald that that is the worst. I mean, the place that I fear to tread personally is Sky News' Facebook page, but that's just because I know you can never count on any support that's Indigenous amongst the followers of that page. I've noticed that it is pages like SBS and The Guardian, which are seen as left-wing, which are seen as the moderate voices, which are supportive of diversity, that do attract this. And you can't help wondering if the people who go there to comment aren't remotely engaged with those news sites and what they stand for, but are actually actively there purely to cause trouble. Yeah. Purely to shift the balance of the conversation elsewhere and plant in sort of like black and white, yin and yang, to plant the opposite kinds of seeds to the ones that you're trying to plant. That's definitely the case. Absolutely. We know that there are international, global groups that have agendas that seek to do exactly what you describe. And places like SBS particularly seem to be regularly on their radar. The difference for us is that we know going into an SBS comment section that there is going to be support amongst the people who are also there, that we will not be the only ones. And we don't want to be the only ones. That's not our goal. Our goal is to set a tone and support others to speak out themselves. Okay, so you found a a post that's triggered a lot of negative commenting, say, on SBS. Then what happens after you find that post? What do you do with the members of I Am Here Australia? Oftentimes, we amongst the admin and moderator team will discuss something before we post it to our members. Sometimes it's a very difficult topic, very sensitive topic, just to make sure that we're on the same page because we can't bring something and ask our members to go somewhere if we're not all comfortable going there as well. So there's that aspect. But then we also try to, in the most neutral way, describe what's going on in this comment section, why we're needed there, and give some guidance as to the tone that we'd like to set. Then it's up to our members. To get in there. And so you do give actually quite clear guidance. What's some of the things that you ask members to do and not to do? Well, we, we, give, we have a template of every action that we post that asks specific things of members. And some of them are internal, as in, please like this post so more of our members see it. Some of them are external, like, remember, don't engage in personal attacks. Don't make fun of people's spelling or their name. I mean, and these are things that obviously people know, but we feel it's important to remind people every time that we are there to be positive. And part of that is posting our own positive comments. Part of it is supporting other people's positive comments. And part of it is refraining from engaging in negative comments altogether. So don't hit a react button. Don't reply. If you want to reply to something that someone said in a negative comment, make your own headline comment. And that gives us 
more opportunities to have a more positive tone higher up in the Facebook feed. And you do tag all the comments with the hashtag I'm here Australia, isn't it? Even if you are engaging in an overseas action. Yes. Generally, if I'm engaging in an overseas action, I'll, I'll use our hashtag and the hashtag of the overseas group. And the reasoning we do that is because when you're wading into a thread with 800, 1,000 comments, you're not going to read through each and every one to figure out who is a member of your team to help support their comment. So if you see the bolded hashtag as you're scanning through the comments, it just makes it easier to find each other. And what you do then is that you will usually do something like give it a heart on Facebook, which is regarded as a higher response than just a like, isn't it? It is. The, the Facebook algorithm that orders comments, meaning the order in which you, the viewer views them, relies on waiting. So things are weighted by reactions and each reaction button has given a different weight. So the angry react and the love heart react are both considered the strongest reactions, obviously at the opposite ends. And everything in between is weighted more lightly. So if you give something a heart, it gives it more weight in the algorithm. Equally replies. There can be a comment that has 25 replies and no reactions, and it'll be lower down than a comment that has 25 reactions and no replies. Okay, so replies don't necessarily lift a comment up. It's that all-important reaction. And I guess that's really useful for listeners to know is that if they see a comment that is really measured on any Facebook uh, page and they like it and they want, they hope that that comment will be lifted up the, the, the list, then give it, a, give it a heart rather than a thumbs up, which is super interesting. Now, if you do tag yourself with the hashtag I am here, I am here Australia, do you run the risk of looking like you're part of a group and therefore being dismissed by others? I mean, you know, I guess you're going to be dismissed by those who are there just to, you know, <laughs> to spread to spread hate and dissent. Is so being identified as an I am here member. I wonder what that looks like to outsiders. Well, I would say this. I see reasoning on both sides of whether to use the hashtag or not. And it's not definitely not mandatory. We don't tell people to use it. We ask them to. But I would say that the people that are there looking to cause trouble, looking to be negative, looking to sow discord, are looking for any reason to discredit you. Any reason whatsoever. So if they want to discredit me because I'm there with a bunch of people trying to do the same thing, they're more than welcome to. Yeah, because, I mean, in the end, actually, it's quite interesting. I find I used to get absolutely infuriated by ignorant comments, but now I just look at them and I think it's, this is all part of an interesting kind of dance, really, isn't it? And I, I read them, they can be personal about me, and I'm just like, no, I, I really just doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Instead, what I'm doing is participating in in some activism I'm being with a crew with you with the, the group of people in I am here a social justice warrior and that's actually pretty cool yeah I agree I mean I like you I used to get shaky shaky mad and and heart beating fast at some of the things that people said to me online and I just don't anymore they can attack me personally all they like water off a duck's back I still do get upset not by things directed at me but by the glee with which some people profess their desire to be cruel and how 
they don't seem to have any shame that that's their real face, their real name, their real Facebook profile on a public platform saying these horribly, horribly hateful things. No shame at all. That's what upsets me. Yeah. And that is a weird phenomenon, isn't it? But I wonder, hopefully at some point, somebody's going to analyse some of this and really come to understand what it represents. And I said earlier that I, that, you know, it represents hatred and discrimination, but it also at the heart of all of that is fear. Mm. And I think, you know, I'd like to turn actually now a little bit to climate because the climate crisis is one of the topics which you and I am here around the world steps up to talk about. Greta Thunberg, for example, there's a lot of hate directed towards her, but also just the plain simple facts of climate the climate crisis and what's going on. Given that that is such a fact-based area, it's not just about discrimination, it's about the reality in which we all live. How does working against climate crisis fake news work for you guys? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right about Greta Thunberg. Pretty much anything ever put up about Greta Thunberg is guaranteed to attract the gamut. In fact, it's sort of the story that has a bit of everything, be it misogyny or science denial or global UN conspiracies, you name it. It's all all part of that Greta Thunberg phenomenon. But in terms of actual countering of misinformation and disinformation, we look to credible sources. We collate and collect credible information. It's a very proactive thing that we do because we want to have the actual facts not only on our side, but we actually want to know that when we're saying, no, that's not true, it actually isn't. And so we actually do a lot of work to have references, links, data at our fingertips when we go into those kind of sections, threads where the science denial, and as you say, fear, are dominant. And it's not to convince these people who are expressing these ideas. The psychology of that is, is way too deep to be able to, in a few comments on Facebook, convince somebody that their entire worldview is wrong. It's to leave a trace for those people, like you mentioned in your opening, who are curious but really aren't that well informed. And if they see the dominant narrative being one of conspiracy, of denial, they will or are may be inclined to believe that that's the mainstream, that that's normal, that these things are up for debate and questionable when we know that they're not. So what's going on here? It's not just about countering false facts. It's about the idea of opening up of space. The opening of space is a really quite a beautiful notion. I wonder if you could talk about how it works and why it's important. Well, there's a principle called counterspeak, which for the most part we find very useful, which is some of the things I've covered so far about not directly engaging in negativity, etc., and creating your own opportunities to say what you want to say rather than responding to other people. But it's also about, as you say, creating that space and supporting strangers, people who might normally not have the inclination or the, or the bravery to speak up and say what they think. So that it's opening that wedge. So when people see people saying the sorts of things they'd like to see people say or wish they themselves had the courage to say they themselves are more likely to partake speak out and have their voices heard so what have you seen happen in this online space 
when an action takes place in terms of the feel of the post and the mood of the comments can you can you give us some examples and and particularly in fact in terms of the climate crisis would be great in the larger picture we definitely noticed over an extended period of time especially during the bushfire crises of of this past uh summer that not only did more and more and more people because we engaged in a lot a lot of actions around it more and more people started speaking out in in support of you know science and also the tone of a lot of the media outlets articles actually changed so from the places that were consistently and regularly putting out climate science denialism like just you know the australian sky news the murdoch press who were pushing the denialism really hard they actually started occasionally putting Facebook posts up with factual articles and good articles too, like that actually addressed real science. And we noticed to start with places like the Australian and Sky News, when that would happen, their loyal readership would melt down, absolutely melt down and start accusing them of being left-wing tools of the UN and George Soros and whatever whatever else you've got. But it gave us a great opportunity to actually go, thank you, The Australian. Thank you, Sky News, for putting facts out there. And it was, amaz- it was amazing to watch people who probably had been lurking in the background of Sky News's Facebook page or The Australian's Facebook page and never dared say a word start to step forward and say something. So there's the opening space. And I remember, I mean, it's very easy to forget in these times of COVID-19 what happened over the summer in Australia and how severe and terrifying it was. And I can only hope that, you know, when things return to a new normal, that climate is part of that conversation and that we haven't forgotten. But it was really interesting to see that shift and to imagine and to hope that the conversations we were having online were part of the shift. I wonder if you've ever had a communication from the news organisations themselves, SBS, The Guardian. I wonder how they react to why I'm here. I have not had any communication from any of the major media outlets at all. Overseas, I know they have, as evidenced, obviously, by the number of articles that have been published in the BBC and elsewhere. But no, I've never been contacted. And in fact, I've tried to make contact occasionally. The ABC just doesn't get back to you. SBS and The Guardian are a bit different, particularly The Guardian. The Guardian has very, very, very proactively stepped up and moderated its Facebook comments. They're they're doing the best. Uh, They can't stop people from posting things, but they can delete them, and they do. SBS has gotten a bit better. They do delete, and so do the ABC. The rest, I don't see them doing anything. There have been times where we there have been times where we've reached out to say Seven News, and said. Have you seen this? Is this going on? And when I reach out, when I say reach out to them, I mean send them a message on Facebook, a a personal message. Have you seen this? And they go, oh, you know, we usually check things once a day. Once a day? Yeah, I mean, you've got 3,000 hateful comments here, horribly, horribly hateful and racist comments here, and you haven't even looked at it yet? And believe it or not, they deleted it. After having their attention directed to it, it was gone within five minutes. So that's a sort of a lesson for young players. It is always actually worth writing 
writing to a news organisations and calling it out, not just reporting the comment, but writing to them. I want to talk to you about your own history now, Gabriel, which I'm sure you're going to be resistant to doing, but I'm going to ask (laughs) you anyway, (laughs) because I know it's not about you, but at the same time, it's really useful for people to hear individual stories of what happens when you decide to stand up against ignorance, against cruelty, against bigotry, um, and to stand up, in fact, for for the world and for the planet. When did you personally realise that that these things were something you wanted to speak up against? Well, I would say always. I just never applied that in an online space until, as I said, after the 2016 US presidential election, I realized that what was going on online was much, much more serious than I realized than I had realized or accepted. And I actually began on my own to wade into these comment sections and I got slaughtered. I got absolutely slaughtered and I cried and, you know, wanted to curl up in a ball. It was horrible, but I did it. And I came across a few other people that I met online who did it as well. And we started tagging each other or sending each other private messages when we saw something that we thought really needed attention. And, you know, this would be six or seven people, maybe max. Sometimes it would just be you and one other person. Um, But we didn't necessarily do it to the uh, standards of, of the I Am Here movement, that's for sure. We were not angels ourselves. And actually being part of the I Am Here movement has been a huge lesson for me of how much more effective it is to actually take a breath, calm down, don't react, don't give them what they want. Yeah, I find that really interesting and actually very good for the mental health. Rather than just rather than being incensed and letting it all hang out, to as I said before, it does become a bit of a game just to cool down and and go go in sharply and clearly. I wonder though, as a young man, I mean, because I think you and I are of a generation that was very much pre-internet. Was it adolescence when you went, okay, I'm going to stand up for that kid over here who's being attacked or I'm going to take part in a march to save the Mm. local, Mm. you know, tract of bush? What about that kind of aspect of your life? I definitely was always someone who tried to stick up for and look out for the underdog, the marginalized. What was different about you, do you think? I honestly don't know. I think if, if, if there's anything I could point to, it would be my upbringing, because I don't think it's anything necessarily intrinsic in me that's absent in other people. But then the first time I remember actually consciously making a choice to stand up for something was late 80s, high school. A bunch of us from my high school pitched in and rented a bus to take us to a pro-choice rally in Washington, D.C., which is when the Supreme Court was had agreed to rehear the Roe versus Wade case. And by the time we got to Washington, D.C., there were so many people that had come that we had to park at a stadium on the outskirts of town and walk all the way to the mall, which is where the Capitol building is, which is where the protest was. And there were well over a million people there. And there were amazing speakers. Susan Sarandon was there uh, speaking. And as a, I think I was 17, maybe I was 16. As a person of that age, the impression that that made on me was so huge that it's not the kind of thing you ever really walk away from after you've, after you've made that leap into that kind of realm of activism. 
That's absolutely wonderful. It's a really fantastic story to hear. For me, I was much more isolated than that. And I don't remember going to rallies. But again, it was a matter of upbringing. My father and my mother were really strong on doing the right thing for other people. You know, we, we were an atheist family, so there was no religion involved. But it was very much about what was honourable and what was true and what was decent. And that turned into an environmental consciousness for me when I was, you know, in my early teens. But then again, it was, you know, conservative Perth and then conservative Brisbane, having been in London before that as a young kid. And yeah, it was about just how remarkable the world is, how incredible it was to look up at the stars, to experience the granite rocks of the area around York which is just outside of Perth it was my first introduction to the natural world really and it and you know I just vibrated with it and I wanted to protect it and I wanted to protect it with my body if need be and then it wasn't until I was you know at university that I was this was I was able to express this in in being socially active and I have like as I said in parallel with you being proud to call myself an SJW (laughs) which is usually a term of abuse but I love it social justice warrior what could be wrong with that I know how Um, is that an insult how is that an insult? <laughs> There's just literally nothing about it that is wrong. Yeah. And for a long time when I was at the ABC, I could not call myself this or even really think of myself in that way, except that, you know, the work that I did was always trying to raise awareness in no matter how laterally about environmental issues. But now that I'm freelance after, you know, I I love that it's just such a big part of my identity. Tell me about reclaiming that term for yourself. And it's more than just a term, isn't it? It's a framework. It's a way of living. Well, I, I never heard the term until it was being directed as me, at me in a negative light, which I just thought was hilarious, you know. It's inexplicable, really, why that, that that's a negative thing. But in terms of owning it for myself... Standing with marginalized people, having empathy, seeing something that's wrong, and at least trying to help to make it better have always been part of who I am. I mean, I, I like you, grew up with a, a love of nature, and that was instilled in me from a very young age. But also the idea of qual- equality of the sexes was instilled in me from a very young age. I grew up around strong, intelligent women who were listened to and whose opinions and voices were heard and taken seriously and as well as people of color who were in similar positions of authority who everyone respected so those templates were laid out for me obviously i i I didn't have a hand in setting those examples for myself but they were what was shown to me as what was right and so whenever someone calls me a social justice warrior i think okay well yeah i've i've kind of been that my entire life yeah, so, and, you know, so where are you going to go with that insult? <laughs> it's yeah. like, how, how, do you, how do you feel in yourself speaking up? I mean, for me, it's a compulsion. I can't bear cruelty. I can't bear suffering. And I extend that not just to the human but the more than human, um, animal, plants, trees. I'm in there, you know, to hell with the consequences and to hell with the risk. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't. What drives you? Well, I think it's similar. I think that I, I, well, firstly, I have a big mouth and that has 
that is translated directly. I love your big mouth, Gabby. <laughs> that, is <translated, laughs> that is translated directly into having very sore thumbs a lot of the time from tapping on my phone. But I, I don't, I, I guess I don't know. It just feels so intrinsic and, in, and a part of me to stand up for what I believe in. In terms of how I've been able to maintain a level head and a sane mind dealing with what I and you and we all deal with online every day, it's made me stronger, honestly. I think it's not for everyone. I don't think everyone can do it. And I totally understand that because it's hard. It's really hard. But it has made me a stronger, better person. Mm, I'm really interested in actually what you say about a level head. Sometimes, you know, I've been driven by outright fury for quite a lot of my life at injustice. These days, and, you know, maybe it's perimenopause, I don't know, but it's a kind of a cool anger. The anger isn't always driven by distress the way it was when I was a bit younger. I think that's possibly a good thing because that red-hot anger was exhausting and debilitating. But there's a cooler there's a cooler anger driving me now. Do you – I know that you've got a wickedly sharp and funny tongue, which is thoroughly enjoyable at times – how do you balance that in, you know, that, it, I mean, I, first of all, do you, I think you do feel anger. How do you hold it? How do you channel it? And what role does humour play in that? I wouldn't say I'm driven by anger, no. Maybe would say that indignance, if that's a word, maybe drives me sometimes, you know, at, at injustice and at disinformation just the deliberate cruelty that people display so that does sometimes just drive me out I'll see something that someone said and I'll be like what no way you're not getting away with that you know and I wouldn't call that anger that's probably indignance really how do you balance humor and well indignance and if that is a word I think if it isn't we've just made it one coined it yeah (laughs) how do you manage to keep yourself from getting a bit sharp with people Particularly when you're using the hashtag I am here. And yeah. do you sometimes just go, oh, to hell with it. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use it here. No, I don't do that. But it is very, very hard. I have to stop myself multiple times a day from responding the way that I really want to respond. Because I'm not, this may come as a surprise to you, Gretchen, but I'm not a very nice person naturally. I don't think I'm a bad person. <laughs> I think I'm a good person. But I would not call myself nice. I don't put up with fools. I don't really hold my tongue much. And I think in, in everyday life, that's fine. But doing this, I've really, really, really worked at not saying what I want to say. And then I, say, I will say what I want to say, but I will not say it the way I want to say it. And sometimes that's a bit frustrating. Sometimes it's actually funny because I come up with something better when I think about it for a sec before I just respond. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, like I said before, I think this has actually made me better moderating my my tone and the way that I interact with people to be more respectful and constructive, watching how that actually works and actually how it improves everything I want to get out of that interaction. I know it's the right thing to do. So it gets easier and easier and easier for me to not have the knee-jerk, sarcastic, maybe even slightly mean response. You've actually gained members out of people who were initially perhaps batting for the wrong side. Yeah, that's true. People who were initially antagonistic and showing them uh, a bit of a respectful tone, a bit of constructive engagement can and has done actually completely turn the tone 
and and adversarial nature of the interaction all the way around to where they then they then expressed interest in what we're doing and what's the hashtag and and we've had people join as a result of those kinds of interactions. So to wind up here, what's it like to be a member of the I Am Here Australia community? Well, you know as well as I do that we're very supportive of each other. I Personally, I feel a duty of care to other members, and I feel like a lot of members feel that way as well, that we're asking each other to go to these places that are sometimes very dark, and that while they're there, we need to look out for each other, help each other when we can, tag team with each other if we need to, say, you take a break, I'll go in for you. If you're feeling overwhelmed, get out of there, I'll help. I am here. So the the phrase, I am here, it's a statement to the outside world, but it's also a statement to each other. And we are there for marginalized people. We are there for truth. We are there for decency, but we are also there to support and help each other. And it is quite a lovely relationship. I mean, I've certainly continued friendships outside of the group and made connections outside of the group, which is amazing. Yeah, and it's also an international community, particularly, I think, for you as an admin. You're in communication with the international teams. Yeah, all the time, all the time. We do coordinate quite a few things internationally. We do international joint actions where someone in, say, Italy says please help us on this post and and we all, if we can, do. And you can use Google Translate. You can do it in English. They can use Google Translate. Nobody cares. As long as you're there, they're happy. It's a beautiful thing. So anyone who wants to join I Am Here Australia, what do they have to do? Click the join button and answer the three questions. So just look for I Am Here Australia in your search bar. It's so simple and you'll be welcomed with open arms. It is a wonderful community. I really recommend joining it. It's very nourishing apart from anything else. Gabriel Morse, it has been so special to chat. Thank you for your time on Climactic today. We'll put a link in the show notes to I Am Here Australia just in case. But that's all from us here at Climactic. Keep it up, you social justice warriors. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.